Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to a, another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio. And you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Pre-ordered copies are available now on Amazon. I suggest if you're interested, you pre-order. We have an unlimited initial run on the number of books that are being printed. And I highly recommend. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA. And that is here. This was already going to be a difficult day. I'm recording this on the one-year anniversary of the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna in the helicopter crash down in Calabasas, California. For those of you who may or may not know, I got to know Kobe probably better than anybody in the media. First crossed paths with him at Long Beach State, his first summer league appearance. This was pre 9-11, pre a lot of things. And so security and procedures were very loose I walked right into the locker room at Long Beach State and saw a young, straight out of high school, Kobe, putting his a jock, a jock and his shoes into a little backpack and walking out and having this joyful effervescence about him. Clearly, being in the NBA, this was summer league, Long Beach State at the Pyramid, didn't matter. He was thrilled to be doing what he was doing. And he was Kobe from the very beginning. Everybody was shocked at the number of shots that he was putting up. He was might have been a high school player, but as far as he was concerned, he had arrived and as he liked to say, he played shooting guard and his job was to shoot. So we came into the league roughly at the same time. It was a few years ahead of him. But combination of luck, timing, mutual relationships and having a similar desire to rise to the top of our respective fields within the NBA, 
we ended up uh, developing a, a relationship. Certainly my role at ESPN, combination of being a sideline reporter, senior writer with the magazine, appearing on SportsCenter, facilitated the relationship. Kobe was no dummy. I'm not sure that if I had just been the beat writer at the San Jose Mercury News, that we would have had the same relationship. Nonetheless, he afforded me access and insight to him that few others had. And I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get why this memorial and what is being done a year later rubs me the wrong way. And I take issue with it. But this would have been already a difficult day. And then I discovered that Seiko Smith from NBA TV, longtime beat writer, first primarily with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering the Atlanta Hawks, that's how we first met, died of COVID today. Hits me hard. Father of three, husband, and we had a very similar start. He covered an awful Hawks team, and yet every time you saw him, he acted as if he had his dream job and it was the best thing he could be doing. He loved covering the NBA. Didn't matter how bad his team was or what little shine he might be getting or the fact that very few people in Atlanta cared about the Hawks at that time. He loved what he did. And I can certainly relate to that because I started out for the San Jose Mercury News covering the Golden State Warriors when they were not very good. And I thought I had landed my dream job. Love covering the NBA now. Loved covering it then. The platforms have gotten bigger and bigger, but it didn't really matter. I loved that job. I loved covering that team. I loved being a beat writer, just as I love being a father and a husband and balancing my professional life and my professional goals with my personal ones. Seiko was doing the exact same thing and grew from being a beat writer to a regular on NBA TV and working for Turner Sports. So it's with a heavy heart that I do this podcast, but this is also therapeutic for me to talk about Seiko and to talk about Kobe and all that I'm seeing that is being written and said and reported on him as part of the one-year anniversary of his passing. I won't be doing any of that, eulogizing him, that is, adding to his legacy, digging up more stories. Not, not now. Maybe at some point it will seem right. But to be honest with you, doing it today or around this day feels wrong. It feels exploitive. Now, I know that's a harsh statement. It's a harsh assessment, but that's how it feels. And, and I'm putting this out there because I don't know whether you guys feel the same way. Maybe for you, reading these stories or hearing more about what it was like the first time guys played Kobe or things teammates said or conversations that he had, like revisiting all that, maybe that adds something to your memory of Kobe. It doesn't for me. And, and I understand that maybe some of that is because 
I had the very rare, unique privilege of knowing him as I did. So nothing that I could find out now is going to change the way that I remember him. And I don't say any of this as a criticism of my media brethren. I understand they have a job to do. And I'm in the unique position where I don't have to write or talk about anything at this point in my career that I don't want to write or talk about. I'm sure that if I was still at Bleacher Report right now, chances are they would have asked me to do something on Kobe. And I don't know how I would have answered that, to be honest with you. I mean, I do respect the fact that when I'm working for somebody, they are or have the, the right to call on me to do whatever it is that they need me to do, and I try to fulfill those requests. What I appreciate is that during my time at ESPN and at Bleacher Report, I generally had editors who we could discuss what it was that they wanted me to do. And in many cases, I was the one pitching the idea, so I was already comfortable with it. But if they pitched it, we would have a conversation about how I thought that particular subject should be approached, or in the rare instance, why I thought it didn't make sense at the time to do that piece as someone in the upper echelon of the company may have wanted. I shouldn't just single out ESPN and Bleacher Report as the only places where I had that kind of a working relationship. I've been very fortunate going all the way back to when I was an editorial assistant coming out of college at Yankee Magazine and the Old Farmer's Almanac in Dublin, New Hampshire. Mel Allen, my first editor, was pivotal in launching me and helping me become the writer that I ultimately became. And I've had great editors ever since, all along the way. Been a couple exceptions, or not even exceptions in terms of the quality of editor, but some disagreements on some things and prompted me to make moves that ultimately were benefits to my career. So all of it added up to being a positive. But I would assume that at least the writers, reporters, TV analysts who enjoy a status similar to mine would have a choice in doing what they're doing. And maybe most importantly, when. If there was stuff about Kobe that hadn't been said, that still needed to be, why did we have to wait until the one-year anniversary of his death? Are we memorializing him or adding to his legend, or filling a gap in an otherwise slow news cycle for the NBA and sports in general? I've glanced at a few things that have been written or said, but they didn't tell me anything I didn't already know and they didn't draw me in to want more. If anything, they created a pit in my stomach, reminding me that he's not here, and what a shock it is that he's not. Social media remembrances, fine. Plenty of players, various people who knew Kobe have done that. It's understandable. Actual stories about more people talking about him? Eh. Unless they broke new ground, maybe. But even then, I'm not so sure. 
Look, I know who he was. I know how I'll remember him. That's not going to change based on anything I read or hear in the next 24 hours. So what's the point? It's one of the things I ask myself all the time. What's my motivation? Because there was a time in my life when I could hide a negative or not so great motive under the guise of a good one. I don't know if I was fooling anyone else, but I could talk myself into doing that. It's called rationalization or justification. And I try not to do that anymore. And that's where this feels exploitive. And also dangerous. Because the truth is that we're a year removed from his death. And all of what we're seeing at this point is only going to be about the greatness of Kobe Bryant. And certainly there's plenty there. He was an amazing individual, but he wasn't all good. So part of this, I feel as if we're forced to shape a different view of him by this memorialization a year later. He had his faults and the fact that he overcame them or that they were part of the fabric that made him who he was, like I accept all of that. I don't see any of that now. And it almost feels as if it would be bad taste if you went there. So can you really do something honest a year later that would capture Kobe Bryant or add to the full picture of who Kobe Bryant was and what he did and what he meant? I pitched doing a story when he first about the way the memorial was shaped and all of the women uh, and the and Gene Ariemo, the, the coach of the University of Connecticut women's basketball team and how to me all of it spoke to a an apology writ large because it was my understanding was these were all the people that Kobe had become close to and would have wanted to be there to speak on his behalf. And I believe it all goes back to Colorado. I believe it goes back to the betrayal of his wife and how his treatment of the hotel female employee was presented to the public, who that made him appear to be when it came to women and that he wanted to find a way to make up for that, as he did in so many other things in his life. Ultimately, Bleacher Report didn't want me to do that story unless Sabrina Ionescu or somebody would come forward and basically carry the water for that idea. And, uh, or Diana Taurasi, name, name a high-profile woman who might say, yes, that's how they perceive this, or in some way speak on their view. The women who supported him and defended him ask them or get them to answer how they reconcile their support of Kobe with what happened in Colorado. And no one was willing to do that, not because they didn't agree with it, because 
through back channels, I was told they did, that they looked at Colorado as an incident, not a definition of who Kobe was. And that it was something that he spent the rest of his life trying to live down and was continuing to do that with his daughter. Bottom line was Bleacher Report considered the concept of the story too risky, too likely to cause a social media backlash. And why would you bring that up and connect that to his memorial? If it was too risky then, a year later, it seems almost impossible to visit that now, especially in the face of all of the other stories that are being written. And not to say that it needs to be. But one, I never saw it as a negative story. I saw it as a redemptive one. Here's a guy who made a mistake, regretted it, and was doing everything that he could to make up for it. In any case, I see it as an important part of Kobe's life story. If there's any aspect of his life story that I know that has not been told, it's that. His final act, as it turned out, the final chapter, where he was headed, what was inspiring him in the end. And I'm not seeing any of that based on the headlines or the subject matter that is being advertised in the pieces that are being done at this stage. I apologize if any of this is coming off as cynical or hypercritical. It is possible that the emotion of the day, being reminded of something that still seems unreal, that Kobe is not here, and then discovering that my friend Seiko died today of the coronavirus, has put me in a mood where it's particularly easy to pick out what's wrong with the world. And some of that, no doubt, is coming from when I put out a tweet about Siku and his passing, and I related it to the unnecessary deaths that we suffered in the Vietnam War. That's the first time I remember something huge happening that gripped the nation and that so many people died from and was so controversial and created so much divisiveness in this country. Never forget, I was a trumpet player in high school, along with playing the piano. And when the Vietnam War was over, my parents convinced me to go out onto the front porch and play taps. So it's one of those memories that I will always keep with me about the momentousness of that episode being over. In any event, in mentioning that I just learned about Seku dying, I referenced the Vietnam War and how we all look back at the nearly 60,000 lives that were lost and how needless and unnecessary and stupid it all seems now. And I dare say you're not going to find anybody who's going to say, you know what, that was a righteous war. That was Those people died for a cause that was worthwhile. I don't know anybody who would say that. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And yet we have this debate in our country right now about whether the coronavirus is real and what measures we should be collectively taking to protect ourselves from it. And we've lost seven times more people, more Americans to the virus in less than a year than we did in a 20-year war. And yes, my anger and frustration is fueled by Seiko being the latest one to be a victim. But it's also fueled by the audacity of people on Twitter who responded to my note by suggesting that it was political or that it was a hoax or that the numbers are inflated or that Seku died of something else. What else was he suffering from? What did he really die from? Like suspicion raised about my friend dying. That's what I got on Twitter. That was the response. Now, I got some other responses and I got people who took up the fight for me on those saying such things. But where did, how do we get to this place where we treat each other like that? My friend died. And your response is, hey, shut the bleep up. Don't make it political. I didn't make it political. I, I could. But the truth is, I, I believe that each of us has a responsibility to take care of our own to work within our respective circles. And that ultimately looking to the president or the government to take care of us is, if not unrealistic, impractical. I don't look to the government or athletes or anyone else to set an example and to raise my kids and to teach them principles. I don't look to anyone else to establish how my house is going to be run or what my part in my community is going to be. But if I'm made aware that just possibly I could be doing something that endangers both my family, myself, and those around me, be they neighbors or strangers, and I choose to ignore that, I don't understand that logic. I don't understand the idea of suggesting or looking for reasons why that may not be true. Who cares? Who cares whether what degree of efficiency the masks work? If you've got a, got a better idea, if you've got something that works better than a mask, bring it on up. But to suggest that this event is not even happening when we've got nearly a half a million dead and the outcries whether it was 9-11 or the Vietnam War or you name it, all of the tragedies that we've had pale in comparison to what this country has experienced. And yeah, I'm particularly passionate about this right now because I just lost a dear friend 
who has three kids and a wife who are now without him. And he doesn't get to experience what I've experienced and am experiencing and hopefully continue to experience by being a father and a husband. And I suppose this is another level of craziness to it all. Again, because of the response. And I know it's only a few, but the, that that thinking exists out there tells me they may not be the only ones. And certainly we've seen as a nation that it's not an isolated few. There's a healthy number of people who are not buying into that nearly a half a million people have died or that they've died from other causes. And let's say the numbers are skewed. The numbers are still beyond anything that has transpired and they are still needless numbers if we haven't taken every precaution, made every effort to change the equation. And why? Because wearing a mask is a violation of what? I know it's been said elsewhere, but no shirt, no shoes, no service. Is that a violation of your freedom? You have to wear a seatbelt when you drive the car, hands-free on the phone. I'm sure plenty of people are still violating those. Are your freedoms being violated or is that in order to protect the common good? Yeah, but I wash my feet and I am clean. Yeah, but maybe the next person isn't, you idiot. Or maybe you're not as clean as you think you are. But here's the truly crazy part. I imagine that most of the people that follow me on Twitter or follow my work or are aware of my presence are sports fans. And what is it that draws us to sports? It's the spectacle. It's the amazement at human feats. But it's also the beauty of teamwork. It's the beauty of a group doing what an individual could not. We love, as much as we love, the deep three-pointer or the 50-yard bomb. What we love about that 50-yard bomb is the connection between the quarterback and the wide receiver, or a defense that shuts down an offense, everybody collectively helping one another, being on a string, as they like to say in the NBA. LeBron passing, magic, name it. It's the old line by Jason Kidd about an assist. If you score a bucket, and I'm sure Jason wasn't the first to say it. It's come down through the ages. I just remember him saying it. You score a bucket, you make one person happy. You deliver an assist, you make two people happy. You and the guy who scored the bucket. So how is it that any sports fan, anybody who loves sports, who believes in the mastery and magic and beauty of teamwork, is unwilling to do something whatever it might be for their fellow human being. Making sacrifices is the essence. I can tell you this. For someone who has watched, covered, and gotten to know multitudes of championship teams, spent my life studying them, and what makes the champion different from the runner-up, or the organization that builds itself into a champion out of dregs. What is it? And in every case, it's sacrifice. It's taking personal agendas and putting them aside 
and finding a collective one. Now, there are plenty of arguments. There are plenty of disagreements. But at some point, everybody recognizes a common enemy and a common goal. And they figure out who needs to do what and who needs to give up this for that. And everybody plays their role. Those are the teams that end up winning championships. And it's not just the role players doing that. Allen Iverson didn't win a championship. Why? Because he couldn't take that last step. Steph Curry did. Why? Because he was willing to. Kevin Durant was willing to. LeBron James was willing to. You can go down the line of players, superstars, who ultimately did not win until they conceded that they couldn't necessarily do it their way. That's been the problem over and over again. Michael had, Michael Jordan had that problem. He wanted to win his way, not out of selfishness, out of belief that that was the way to get it done until he was defeated enough times and said, okay, I'll try it another way. Phil, I'll try it your way. I'll trust my teammates. I'll play within the triangle. I'll save myself for the last six to eight minutes. LeBron said in Miami, I'll play below the free throw line. I'll stop taking so many threes. I'll commit myself to defense. Kobe had to go through the same maturation. Speaking of which, is anybody going to go back and write about the Kobe that had those first round exits or what watching him shoot all those air balls against Utah was like for the Jazz or for his teammates at that time? No, nobody's going to do those stories now. Because, because why? What would they add? And I say the same thing for any other stories about Kobe. What are they going to add? Are we gilding the lily at this point? You can only, you can only write reverent stories at this stage or risk being accused of speaking out in bad taste. And anytime the story or the arc of the story is predetermined based on what will appeal to the audience, then it's not really a story, or at least not a story of integrity. I don't blame people for having a greater distrust of the media today than maybe ever before. Some of that has been blown way out of proportion. The media doesn't come into stories with an agenda in, I can't say all cases, in 99% of the cases. And maybe that's changed. Maybe it's only 90% now. But the overwhelming majority do not come in with an agenda. They come in with an idea. They come in with an angle. They come in with a thought about what might be an interesting story, a curiosity about something that is going on. It's a curiosity. It's not a determination. It's a discovery, not a declaration. That is how journalism works. And yet, the media operates in fear today, or at least in caution about the backlash from an audience that finds whatever they've reported as offensive or their subjects finding it offensive 
and cutting off their access. That is real. And that's why I recommend to any of you out there, and I'm, this puts a greater burden on you. It used to be that the system of mainstream media, yes, the mainstream media that has been beaten down and has been made into a boogeyman and was made so evil long before this previous administration, bloggers and independent media first suggested that the mainstream media was somehow in cahoots or corrupt or just not giving you the real. When, as someone who is a veteran of newspapers, can tell you that there was a clear and extensive process and system of checks and balances to make certain that anything that was publicized had gone through a vetting process that I assure you no longer happens at that level anywhere anymore. And so that puts the burden on you as the consumer, the reader, the listener, the viewer to not just consume from one place, not just to consume and consider the source, but to do your own reconnaissance, to do your own vetting in terms of reading it in more than one place and finding the common threads, the common facts, the common statements. Not trusting simply what's being said by the subjects. Quotes are no longer facts. They're a long way from it. Someone denying a report does not make it fake news. Unfortunately, the responsibility on figuring out what's real and not real, if it's really the truth that you're after, is dependent on you and a lot of work. And on behalf of everyone in the media, I apologize that that is so. I try in my very small way to provide a place and a platform, an oasis, if you will, of I'm going to speak my truth. I'm going to tell you what I know. I don't, honestly, don't have agendas. And if I have favorites or I have dislikes, I will put them out there so that you know that that is coloring my opinion or what I'm saying. But I'm never going to color the facts. I'm always, my, my intention, my objective is to give you the facts and allow you to decide for yourself where you stand on them. Whether you like LeBron or not, whether you like Kobe or not, whether you think the memorial of Kobe in the last 24 hours is appropriate. The one thing that I will not debate is that we have to take care of each other and that we have to think as a community. That doesn't make us communists. That makes us considerate human beings. And I just don't know that we, maybe we'll survive. I mean, I don't want to get all maudlin and doomsday-ish about all of this, but we're not going to live the kind of life that we could live. And I would just tell you, you know, for someone who spent a good deal of his life pursuing his objectives and getting married late and starting a family late as a result of my ambition, that doing something for someone else, no matter how big 
or small has been ultimately more rewarding than anything that I've accomplished in my career. God's honest truth. And so for me, I'm not looking at it as a mask to protect me. I'm looking at it as a mask that I wear for you. I don't know if it's really working, but just in case, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it for you. And I would hope you would do the same. Not for me, but for someone else. All right, that does it for this very unorthodox, unusual, atypical Buker Friendless subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show, even this one, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. The ratings matter. The number of reviews and ratings is the clearest indication our sponsors can get that you care enough about this podcast to actually engage in it, which makes them think, who knows, you might even buy their product too. So... Thank you in advance for doing that. This may be, we've had a run of Buker Friendlesses. This may be the last in a while because I have a number of guests coming up, starting with Nick Nurse of the Toronto Raptors. have a ton of questions to ask him. Perhaps the most important, now nah, there's two. One is, how does a guy who set records in college as a three-point shooter shoot worse from the free throw line than he did on three-pointers? And how, more important, do you motivate a team that had championship contention and now is in that gray area of maybe just trying to make the playoffs? Steve Kerr finds himself in a very similar situation. I'll be interested to find out what Nick has to say about that, along with how do we get Pascal Siakam back on the superstar track? All that and more in the next podcast. As I said, number of great guests lined up, coming up. Please stay tuned. And in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.